My passport allows me to go a lot of places in the world, and I really do like to travel. I'm not sure if I could get into Iran right now um, with my American passport, uh, but there is something going on there, a Kingdom of Jesus revival. Uh, that just is really encouraging to me right now. Uh, 43 years after the revolution, the Islamic revolution, rigid Islamic governance, um, the church is seeing people saved daily within this totalitarian regime. It's pretty amazing. Persian people all over the world that have been scattered different places are finding Jesus. And they're making disciples that make disciples. So what's the key? How is, it, how is this happening? When they come to Christ, they're told to tell others immediately and to train them in the way of Jesus. Evangelism for them isn't something you grow into later in your discipleship. It's the beginning of discipleship. They understand that Jesus is Lord. They're in a new kingdom. Their passport has changed. And they immediately make disciples who make disciples. And India is headed in the same direction uh, as the Islamic regime with this crackdown on Christians. A new law in the northern state of India imposes up to 10 years of jail time for what they're calling forced or mass conversions, more than one person at a time. Uh, it, it also casts suspicion on those influenced by Christian social services, health, education, charity, which appeal to those that are trapped in Hindus' marginalized lower castes. You know, India's constitution guarantees freedom of religion, but laws like this reflect how rapidly the ruling party's push for Hindu nationalism has changed things for Christians in that country. Breakpoint reports all of this. Uh, but efforts to restrict the gospel rarely work. As one local bishop put it, anyone who converts to Christianity is doing so from a strong, unflinching, personal following of Jesus Christ and very much as a personal conscious decision of divine attraction to Jesus Christ, God's love, compassion, forgiveness, justice, and truth. <laughs> ah, let's close in prayer. That's probably enough. It's amazing. I'll read it again to you. Anybody who converts to Christianity under the pressures, right, that they are facing. Anybody who does such a thing is doing so from a strong, unflinching, personal following of Jesus Christ. And very much as a personal, conscious decision of divine attraction to Jesus Christ. God's love, compassion, forgiveness, justice, and truth. His death we celebrate in love. His resurrection from the dead we profess with living faith. His coming in glory we await with unwavering hope. This personal experience makes them embrace Christianity. Wow, let's just put our own mind through that filter right now. Let's just figure this out. Wow, uh, we're in America, right? Uh, but this is, this is why... Christianity has survived so many attempts to stamp it out. And today, I want you to think about which kingdom you most belong to. Of course, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have dual citizenship, right? You're in this world, but you're not of this world. Let's, let's just think about which passport do you pull out first when things get tough, right? Now, I belong to a different kingdom. 
One of the first times I used my passport at all, and this new passport of the new kingdom claiming my dual citizenship was in Sierra Leone, West Africa, as a 19-year-old. I was there as a card-carrying Jesus follower, and I remember being completely overwhelmed by this sense of brotherhood in the kingdom in a local church worship service in Freetown, Sierra Leone. The Spirit of God just opened my heart and gave me a love for the nations. As I looked around at all the singing and dancing and shouting and the tears of my brothers and sisters, it locked deep in my heart that I belonged to a better and bigger kingdom. And I had a better passport than the one that was fresh in my pocket. You know, national pride is a mixed bag. Okay, I'm proud to be an American. I fly the flag out front. I'm a, I'm a proud father of United States Marine. I can't get their hymn out of my head, actually. And I know that God is at work in all the nations. So, so when national pride turns to nationalism or some religious flavor of that, like, like the Islamic Revolution or the, the Hindu nationalism or even Christian nationalism, we're setting ourselves up on the throne and oppose the kingdom of God. Do, do you want to be on the throne? Do you want to oppose the kingdom of God? We live in a very interesting, tense time, right? With all sorts of rights being extracted and, and, and power being grabbed and wealth being taken. And, and we're right in the middle of what many people have experienced throughout the world when they clung to Jesus. Now, as a few weeks ago, I noted the Jewish nationalist spirit, right? And, and the future that awaited them right, with the destruction of the temple and the dispersion completely of the Jewish people. Uh, they, they had come from revolution and they were going toward revolution. And this is the very thing that Jesus had tried to warn them of. He says, be peacemakers, love your enemies, lose the at all cost zeal for preservation of self and state. You love your life, you're going to lose it. That's not the way to preserve your life. Revolution, says Jesus, is not the way of salvation. And so when Jesus announced that the kingdom of God is coming among them, he didn't send in the tanks, the kingdom of God, the empire. He sent in the meek and the merciful. And now Paul is spreading the message of the inclusion of all the families on earth under King Jesus as Lord. And in our passage in Acts, we find that Paul is in the middle of reporting his calling as a prophet of Yahweh. <laughs> Wait, you say, he's a prophet? Yes, just like the Old Testament prophets. The meeting on the road to Damascus has been called his conversion but I think the words completion or calling better capture the essence. The calling comes at the pinnacle of his desire to honor Yahweh through extermination of a new religious sect. This completion of his Jewish expectations comes with a new focus of his worship. Jesus is on the throne in heaven. Who are you, Lord? His understanding of Jesus as the Lord and, and the hope both of 
Israel and the world radically shifts his perspective. In his meetings, plural, with Jesus, he receives his calling as a prophet to the nations. The second meeting was mentioned, I don't know if you caught it, in, in Acts twenty two seventeen, in the previous passage. Like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, he gets a glimpse of the heavenly realm, the thrones, and he receives his calling. This is the test of an Old Testament prophet. Has he stood in the divine council and heard the word, actually seen the word, the word with the capital W, Jesus, who is the word? Let me read that to you. Acts twenty-two seventeen. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, saw him and heard him, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Pause for a second. This is that that first time he was in Jerusalem, not this time now. Uh, but it's true, they, they would not accept the testimony, right? And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, this two-part claim riles them up even more, right? They already have, have beaten him and, and are trying to, to kill him. I mean, now his claim to be a prophet speaking for Yahweh and his commission to the Gentiles is too much for them. Up into this word, says verse 22, they listened to him and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. As we go into our passage today, it says, As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, right? imagine the special effects here that they're creating, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks. This is Claudius Lysias, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. <laughs> it's, it's general practice for the Romans, to interrogate under torture. Think about that. That's really awful. It was assumed that the truth would never come out unless you pried it out of a person. Apparently, you can't just ask Paul why they were shouting at him. Apparently, you have to bind him and flog him with leather straps fitted with heavy and sharp objects. This flogging could kill a man. And this was the Roman way. It's awful. Uh, this is the corruption of power. This is the, the arm of the empire. This is the theory that might makes right. And as Pilate implied to Jesus, truth is defined by those in authority. <laughs> as Jesus reminded Pilate, even Rome is under the authority of Yahweh. So instead of asking him, they are about to interrogate him with flogging. I hurt so much. But when they stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, uh, Is it lawful? 
for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? This man is a Roman citizen. Now look at this. Paul doesn't scream. He doesn't fight. He asks the centurion about a point of order that could really ruin the centurion's career. He could die. His indirect comment is amusing and informative. Paul is only secondarily claiming his rights as a Roman. He's a kingdom citizen first and an empire citizen second. So why claim these rights now? This is a big curiosity and it centers kind of the focus of what I want to say today. He's very indirect about it. He's not claiming it. And, and remember the incident in Philippi in Acts chapter 16? He doesn't even mention his Roman citizenship until after he's been scourged. He's beaten with rods without a trial. He's imprisoned. And he doesn't even mention his rights until the next day. In fact, he writes in Philippians 3, 10 through 11, I want to know him and the power of Jesus' resurrection, that, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. He, he wants to identify with Jesus in suffering. He's okay with that? And it's likely there were other occasions in which Paul kept silent uh, and he surrendered this Roman right. In 2 Corinthians 11, 24-25, it says, Five times I received at the hand of the Jews 40 lashes, minus one, but it says three times, once was in Philippi, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. He goes on, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, etc. So, so we know that he's more than willing to suffer for Jesus. In fact, he knows his destiny is to suffer many painful and disgraceful things for the sake of his Lord. So these are, these are curiosities. And I think the reason he claims his Roman rights now is that flogging could kill Paul. His life, and therefore his mission, is in jeopardy. And it's curious how God uses our humanity in the midst of his role of sovereignty, isn't it? We sit with this tension, I think, on a daily basis. What choice should I make? And what? But, but we see Paul, um, and my, my interpretation of this is that, that he knows that if he gets flogged, he could very well die. And so how could he continue on the way Jesus has called him to go? So the tribune comes to him and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yeah, yes. And the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. So Claudius Lysias bought this. And Paul must not have uh, He must have been wearing tattered clothes. Uh, he'd been assaulted, so he's bruised and battered. And Claudius Lysias, the tribune, must have been wondering how he came about that much money to bribe his way into citizenship. And Claudius had paid his way into citizenship and probably into promotion for his current position. Uh, lots of money and lots of influence can get you far in Rome, uh, in any empire, really, in ours. In fact, there was a scandal in Rome as the Emperor Claudius sold citizenships, making his household very rich. <laughs> this is the way of godless empire. 
So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered him, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. But Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. This claim alone, under interrogation, would lead to a death penalty if it was proven incorrect. So Paul likely had around his neck or somewhere else on his person a certificate of citizenship. This was his passport to prove his claim. It's not wrong to flash the passport, right? passage goes on, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and he brought Paul down and set him before them. The tribune could call the council together when he wanted to. This was called the Sanhedrin. And we talk a lot in church about the Pharisees, not much about the Sadducees who make up the majority of the Sanhedrin. They hold the majority position of the 70, the, the ones who make up the council to rule the affairs of Jerusalem and the Jewish people. The Pharisees were a pressure group with widespread support, trying to grow their ranks and their notoriety to gain power. The Sadducees were consolidating their power and growing their wealth. Interestingly, and maybe in a pesky sort of way, we may have more in common with the Sadducees as Christian Americans who have had a position of power in the nation with wealth to protect. So let's cautiously wade into this uh, potential parallel. <laughs> what did the Sadducees believe? Now, the way I grew up in the Sunday school pun is uh, they were sad, you see, uh, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, it's not really the best pun, um, though I, I'm a fan of puns. Um, they were actually happy with the comfortable life that they had created, and they desperately tried to maintain it. Their situation was not that much different from Demetrius and the idol makers in Ephesus. Remember the craftsmen? They, they were all worried that the message about Jesus would disrupt their economic wealth or their way of life. For the Sadducees, the territory they had claimed, uh, the, the kingdom that they had created, that they ruled in, gave them the comfortable life that they wanted to maintain. They actually expected no life beyond the grave, but they also weren't looking for it either. The resurrection? Who needs it? I'm living my life right now. And Jesus was a threat to that system. Stephen, the martyr, was a threat to that system. Paul is a threat to that system. The Sadducees also didn't believe in the spiritual world, other than God, of course, um, and they were content to live in the material world as is. It's been said that wealth is possibly the number one belief of the Sadducees. Uh, archaeologists today have uncovered a few ancient Sadducee homes, describing them as, quote, the most opulent discovered to date in Jerusalem. Hmm. And maybe you've experienced this. If you've tried to talk to people recently about heaven, uh, many of them seem completely content to just rot in a grave to take that dirt nap. 
after they've lived it up in this life. No, there's nothing beyond. Because they have it all now is the implication. So how did the Sadducees get their power and their wealth? Well, we think the Sadducees got their name after the ancient priest Zadok. So they would be claiming a heritage, not their own, to run the temple. We are the Zedekites, the Sadducees. Uh, they, they had made a deal with Rome to keep the peace in this turbulent land. We'll run the temple grounds. We'll keep tabs on the Jewish population. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll send you any revolutionaries that need to be crucified, like Jesus. They would run the temple spectacle. Uh, and they were also allowed the task of collecting the temple tax. Of course, adding their fees. To a point that the people couldn't pay the temple tax. And so they sold their homes to the Sadducees to pay for their taxes. And then the Sadducees were then the landlords, the wealthy aristocrats, the Jerusalem um, fat cats. At this time of Jesus and Paul, uh, they owned approximately 70% of the land in and around Jerusalem. They were the landlords. They received income from those who were now working their former land for the Sadducees. Uh, the Sadducees, I would say, are living high on the lamb, if you'll pardon the mixed expression. Uh, as we know, Jesus didn't have a lot of nice things to say about them. Uh, as they extorted people and devoured the homes of widows. We also know they were running the temple exchange of coins and animals. When Jesus cleared them out, he called them to account for this. When you go into the temple, your coins would, of course, need to be exchanged for a fee. Oh, you're coming from out of town? We don't accept that. We need to get you into this coin and uh, we'll charge you, of course, a, a fee. And your animal, sorry, sir, is not healthy enough. That won't be allowed into the... You can buy this one here. Where'd you get that one? Well, we're not telling you, but we got it off the last guy. <laughs> because, you know, we told him that he had an inferior lamb. and So we bought that inferior lamb from him for a discount, and then we sell it to the next guy as the pure lamb. Uh, Jesus said, I wish you would close the doors, and I'm going to go ahead and close them for you right now. Because, see, the Sadducees had settled in. They were of this world. They had their portion. They weren't looking for a reset, a revolution, or even a resurrection. They were on the take and living the dream. Uh, you knew this was coming. Pesky pastor questions. Do you see the American Christians today acting like the Sadducees, holding on to wealth and power? Do you see any individual Christians living for the moment, for the here and now? Would others see any of these tendencies in you? And what would Jesus say to us today? You know, would he go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, 25 through 34, where he says, hey, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat and what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? 
And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, of course, he's talking to very poor people, very uh, marginalized people, very disadvantaged people. Not Sadducees, but he's given them a perspective for those that are listening in. He says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And here's the word that I think Jesus would say to us, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right, right relationships with God and humanity and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So which kingdom are you seeking? Which passport are you flashing? Yeah, as we close, I just want to summarize some things here. You know, the entire Bible is source material for determining what it looks like to be this kingdom citizen. And there's no way I can summarize all that, that it means. That's, that's our quest in this life, in these frail bodies, as we await the new creation. Uh, but let's, let's together press in toward kingdom citizenship. I do think there are three postures we can take from our study today that will, will show our, our watching world what it means for us to be holding this dual citizenship. We have a greater hope, a lesser position, and a stable identity. The greater hope. We, we, what are we, we're anticipating a bodily resurrection, a recreated Eden on earth, glorification, becoming like Jesus. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Eugene Peterson, in his phenomenal book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, writes about the dissatisfaction we need to have with this world. He says, a person has to be thoroughly disgusted with the way things are to find the motivation to set out on the Christian way. As long as we think the next election might eliminate crime and establish justice, or another scientific breakthrough might save the environment, or another pay raise might push us over the edge of anxiety into a life of tranquility, we are not likely to risk the arduous uncertainties of the life of faith. A person has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he, before she, acquires an appetite for the world of grace. These arduous uncertainties come from embracing the way of Jesus. In fact, this is our second posture. We have a greater hope, but we have a lesser position. Because suffering with Jesus as the least 
leads us to serving the least. This is the way we know Christ and love Christ. We serve the least. Jesus says, if you want to find me, you want to find me? You, you want to see me? Serve the poor, the destitute, the broken, the imprisoned. That's where I am. You may remember these hard words from Matthew chapter 25, 31 through 46. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, and naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer him, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, in Iran, in India, in Issaquah, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you didn't welcome me. Naked, you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. And then they will also answer, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and, and didn't minister to you? Then he will answer to them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Sharp words? Yes. But this is what the kingdom is like. We have a greater hope, but we take a lesser position because our third posture is a stable identity. Stable identity. I'm a child of the king who is on the throne. The foundations of the earth are shaking. Well, we're part of a kingdom that can never be shaken. But people are opposed to our message. Well, that's predicted and, and expected. Well, I'm feeling uncomfortable. Well, Jesus is the God of all comfort. They're taking away our rights, our power, our wealth. Well, we have an inheritance awaiting us, and he will make everything right. Which kingdom? Which empire? do you associate with? How are you going to live out this greater hope, this lesser position, and this stable identity in the days to come? The world is going to need us to do that.